0: I asked my wife this afternoon how she enjoyed the Bible study this morning, and she said, Sandy, it was great. She said, but you really went too long on that dishwashing business. (laughs) I thought she'd say that. The book of Judges, Judges chapter 1. Let's pray before we get started. Steve, you could turn this up just a little bit. I appreciate it. Father, we thank you tonight for your word. We thank you for our journey through the scriptures, and we pray that you'll speak to our hearts tonight, Lord, as we move through a wonderful book, an exciting book, a book chock full of important lessons for us. Encourage our hearts tonight, Lord, as we study your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You know, when I think back on my past, my deepest regrets are the missed opportunities, the what-ifs the if-onlys, the could-have-beens. Times when God set the table, but I didn't come to dinner. If you wanted to sum up the book of Judges, if you wanted to do it in two words, they would be simply this, missed opportunities. The years after Joshua's death could have been a golden age for Israel, but instead it was one of the darkest periods in their history. At the end of Joshua's life, they had the enemy on the run, but rather than finish the job, drive out the Canaanites as God had commanded, the Hebrews instead chose to tolerate the enemy, worship their idols, and compromise with their sin. In other words, they blew an opportunity. The book of Joshua consists of 24 chapters and covers 30 years While Judges is 21 chapters long, but it covers a period of 350 years. It lists 14 different Judges. 13 of those Judges are exposed in the book. According to tradition, the 14th Judge, Samuel, was its author. There's an old Pogo comic strip that captures the message of Judges. Pogo goes out into the swamp in order to fight the battle. And when he returns, he says, we have met the enemy and he is us. (laughs) You ever felt that way? The book of Judges proves that we are often our own worst enemy. When we put ourselves and our own interests before the will of God, it causes us to miss out on opportunities to receive God's wonderful blessings. The last verse in the book of Judges really sums up the whole book. Judges 21 verse 25 compresses the message of the book into a single phrase. It says, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. How sad. Though the book of Judges ends on a tragic note, it has a bright beginning. We see the Hebrews in chapter 1 working together. Judah and Simeon have joined forces to drive out the Canaanites and the Parasites who occupy the territory that God has allotted to them. They capture a king by the name of Adonai Bezek. This guy had the grisly habit of amputating the thumbs and the big toes of the kings that he conquered. This was sort of his way of humiliating, you know, his foes. Without a thumb, there's no way to really hold a weapon. Without a big toe, it's hard to stand. In fact, without a thumb, it's hard to even hold a fork. In ancient times, to be thumbless and toeless meant to be helpless. But when the Hebrews caught this Adonai Bezek, they chopped off his thumbs and his big toes. And he confesses in verse 7, 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to gather scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. They brought him to Jerusalem and there he died. In other words, what goes around comes around. Or as the Bible puts it, you reap what you sow. Always remember that. It's interesting, we're told in verse 8. Now the children of Judah fought against Jerusalem and took it. They struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. Why then? Does David have to take the same city again 400 years later? I'll tell you why. It's really indicative of Israel's problem. Israel had a poor follow through. My wife plays tennis. And on occasion, I bless her with some excellent free coaching. She always appreciates it, I'm sure. And one of the tidbits I keep telling her, honey, a good serve requires an excellent follow-through. If you want to have a good serve, you've got to follow through. And the same is true when it comes to serving God. Whenever you serve the Lord, don't do it halfway. Follow through. Complete the job. Don't leave it for a King David or a Pastor Randy, for that matter, to have to come around afterwards and finish the job. Complete what you neglected. A job's not over until it's over. If you want to be a good servant, have a good follow-through. Also in chapter 1, Caleb promises his daughter Aksa in marriage to any man who takes the Canaanite city of Kirath-Zephyr. Aksa must have been a knockout because the deal motivates Othniel to knock off the Canaanites. And Caleb really kills two birds with one stone. He finds a brave, courageous, faith-filled man for his daughter, and he conquers the city at the same time. In verse 18, Judah also takes Gaza, Ashkelon, and Ekron. But again, they don't maintain these possessions. Years later, we'll find that these cities become Philistine strongholds. You see, it's not enough just to gain ground spiritually. If we later turn loose of what we've gained, if we lose what's been accomplished, Hebrews 10 tells us, hold fast the confession of our hope. G.K. GK Chesterton once said, the only way to love anything is to realize it can be lost. The only way to love anything is to realize it can be lost. There are what I call Teflon Christians. Nothing sticks. God teaches them and blesses them. But they seem to forget the lessons and ignore the blessings as soon as they occur. Guys, when the Lord opens your eyes to a truth, when He does a work in your heart, remember it. Hold on to it. Embrace it by faith. Don't let the devil steal it away. The only way to love anything is to realize it can be lost. Verse 19 tells us, So the Lord was with Judah, and they drove out the mountaineers, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the lowland because they had chariots of iron. The Canaanites had already entered the Iron Age, and they had built a fleet of chariots. And rather than trust God, Judah became intimidated by the new technology, let's not fall into the same trap. We need to realize that space-age physics and biotech genetics still fall under the authority of the Word of God. The Bible speaks to every area of life. These issues should simply challenge us to rethink and reapply our understanding of Scripture to new circumstances and new situations, but we can remain confident that the Bible still speaks to those issues and every issue. The end of chapter 1 tells us that the tribe of Ephraim had success taking the city of Bethel. But beyond that, the rest of the tribes really did nothing to drive out their enemies. And in the first six verses of chapter 2... God responds to Israel's missed opportunities. The angel of the Lord comes to them from Gilgal and he reminds them of God's command. Get rid of the enemies. Tear down their altars. Destroy their idols. If you don't, if you tolerate these things, they will become a snare. Guys, if you hold on to the unhealthy influences and the ungodly habits... If you hang out with the wrong people continually, eventually they'll get in the way of your growth. They'll get in the way of the good that God would have for your life. They will become a snare. They will become a thorn. We need to drive out the enemy and take possession of the land. Verses 7 through 10 describe a spiritual generation gap. As long as Joshua and the leaders who served under him were alive, the people served the Lord. But notice what happens in verse 10. When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. Baal was the god of the storm and rain. The Canaanites were always seeking to appease Baal to assure for themselves a good harvest. Ashtaroth was the fertility goddess. She was worshipped through lewd and sexual immoral practices. And it grieved the heart of God that his people had forsaken divine revelation. That they had forsaken the miraculous deliverances that he had wrought on their behalf. All to depend on these cheap superstitions. It grieved his heart. But again, notice the problem. Joshua knew God. The elders knew the works of God. And while they were alive, everyone obeyed. But when they died, problems occurred because their offspring knew neither God nor the works of God. The same thing happened in the family of David years later. David followed God with his whole heart. His son Solomon had a half-hearted devotion. And then his son Rehoboam, he had no heart for God at all. I believe it's teaching us that second-hand experiences of God only go so far. A son who sees God's work in answer to his father's prayers, who witnesses God in the life of his father, might be impressed enough to follow in his father's footsteps. But man, when you get down to that third generation who have only heard of God, you can forget it. Hearsay is never enough to capture a heart and transform a life and take control of a person. Every generation needs its own experience with God. You see, every true Christian is a first-generation Christian. We all need to meet God. We all need to experience Him personally in our lives. We can't just ride on the faith of our father or our grandfather, our mother or grandmother. A wise parent, too, knows this. And a wise parent won't just impose their own convictions on their kids. Rather, they'll help their kids cultivate a desire to know God themselves, to walk with God themselves, to have their own relationship with God. The rest of chapter 2 describes the cycle that occurs over and over in the book of Judges. Write down these five words. Sin, servitude, supplication, salvation, and serenity. We find these five things happening in a cycle over and over throughout this book. Here's how it works. The people sin. They follow after false gods. In response, God causes their enemies to rise up and enslave them. They force them into servitude. The Hebrews get tired of the slavery and so they cry out to God to deliver them. In other words, they make supplication. God brings salvation by raising up a judge to lead the Hebrews to victory. That, of course, is followed by a period of calm and serenity until it's interrupted again when the Hebrews repeat their sin and the cycle starts all over again. It happens at least seven times throughout the book. Sin, servitude, supplication, salvation, serenity. Understand too, these judges that we're going to be talking about, these are not old men with legal credentials dressed in black robes with a wooden gavel in their hands. The judges of Israel are not Supreme Court justices. These Old Testament judges were vigilantes. These were men of action. These were Hebrew rambos who rose up at times to beat back the evil and to win the victory. The judges were common men and women with no credentials other than the calling of God. They were people in whom God ignited within them a fire for freedom, a passion for holiness, a hunger for truth, a zeal for justice. And these men and women at times rise up and they rally the nation and they lead the battle to liberate the Hebrews. These judges were Israel's heroes. They were their patriots. The first of these judges was Caleb's son-in-law, Othniel. We read in chapter three, verses seven through eleven, what sets the stage for Othniel's ministry. And notice as we as you read those five verses, the cycle that occurs. The people sin. What happens? They're sold into servitude. They cry out to God. The Spirit of God then comes upon Ahniel, who leads them into victory against the enemy. Then there's peace in the land for 40 years, until, verse 12 tells us, And the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel. And again, the cycle just continues to repeat. And you'll see this cycle over and over through the book of Judges. Verse 14 says that Israel served Eglon for 18 years before again the Hebrews cried out to God for deliverance. This time, God raises up a judge by the name of Ehud. And notice in verse 15, we're told that Ehud was a southpaw. He was a left-hander. How many of you are left-handed? Raise your hand. Well, we've got, Oh, we're about right. Statistics say that one out of every ten people are left-handed. The ancients, though, felt that left-handedness was a handicap. In ancient cultures, being left-handed was viewed as a birth defect or a deformity. And you see traces of this in modern language. In the English, the word gauche means uncouth or crude but it's really the French word for left-handed. The Latin word for left-handedness gets translated into English as the word sinister, which of course means evil or wicked. The point is, is that God chose a man who was viewed by his peers to be inadequate in order to do his work and to accomplish his will. It made sure that when the victory was won, The credit went to God, and not to the instrument that he had chosen to use. Now Eglon had made Jericho, which is called here the city of Palms, his headquarters. And that's where Ehud went to present tribute to Eglon. Afterwards, Ehud told the king that he had a secret message from God. And Eglon took the bait. He sent his servants out of the room. Now Eglon needed to go on one of those slim fast diets because he was just downright fat. Extremely obese. So much so that it was even difficult for him to get up out of the chair. And as he stood, Ehud was able to reach his left hand down under his robe and pull out the dagger that he had strapped to his thigh. He must have put his right arm around the king's shoulder, you know. And pretended to want to whisper in his ear. (laughs) I've got a message from God for you, Eglon. (laughs) But instead of whispering it in his ear, he stuck it in his gut. And he drove the dagger into his stomach. Eglon got the point of the message. Verse 21 says, that Ehu stabbed the dagger so far into Eglon's stomach that the fat wrapped around the knife's handle. And he just sort of left the dagger as his calling card, you know, and split. He escaped. He went back to Ephraim where he rallied the Israelites to attack the Moabites. A great victory was won, and the nation remained at peace for the next 80 years. There are several lessons, though, we want to learn here. First, understand God used Ehud's perceived weakness to win the victory. He stabbed the king with his left hand. And guys, God will use your weakness to accomplish great things. He wants to take your weakness and turn it into a strength. God will turn your weakness into a strength when you turn your weakness over to Him. We need to stop using our handicap, our weakness as an excuse and learn to see it as an opportunity for God to show Himself strong. Also, the New Testament calls the Bible, the Word of God, the Sword of the Spirit. This is a dagger. It's a spiritual dagger. Its message cuts. It gets to the point. It penetrates fleshly thoughts and carnal ways. And we need to use the Word of God. And you know where we need to use it first? (laughs) On ourselves. The next judge was Shamgar. And his term is described in one verse, chapter 3, verse 31. In chapter 4, verse 1, we're told, When Ehud was dead... The children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Cana, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt in Harosheth Hagayim. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, for Jabin had 900 chariots of iron. And for 20 years he harshly oppressed the children of Israel." According to ancient standards, Jabin's 900 iron chariots were a force to be reckoned with. And Sisera's army constituted a military juggernaut. Now, up until now, all of the judges have been men, but in verse 4, we meet Deborah. Now, Deborah, a prophetess, was judging Israel at that time. And she would sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the mountains of Ephraim. And the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. Then she sent and called for Barak and said, Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded, Go and deploy troops at Mount Tabor? Take with you ten thousand men of the sons of Naphtali and of the sons of Zebulun. And against you I will deplore Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots, and his multitude at the river Kishon, and I will deliver him into your hand. Has God not said this to you, Barak? Apparently, Barak had been dragging his feet. Now, note, God calls a man, Barak, to lead his people into battle. We learn that, in, we learn from the New Testament that in the church and in the home, God has ordained male leadership. And it's not just a cultural accommodation. God explains it by taking the principle all the way back to creation. In 1 Corinthians 11 verse 9, there Paul says, Nor was man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. And he springboards off of this to teach male headship in the home and in the church. The man should lead And the woman should support and follow. But when a man refuses to lead, God will raise up a woman to do the job. Barak drug his feet. But that didn't stop God from using Deborah to judge and lead the people. God's work won't be hindered by the lack of a godly, courageous man. God will use women too. In verse 8, Barak answers Deborah. And there's a real brave, bold statement. If you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. There's a man you really want to get behind and follow. Deborah was obviously a very capable, a very strong-willed woman, but she knew the importance of spiritual leadership. She knew it was important for Barak to take the lead. And that's why she chastises him for basically wanting to hide behind the skirts of a woman. She says in verse 9, So she said, I will surely go with you nevertheless. There will be no glory for you in the journey you are taking, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah rose and went with Barak to Kadesh, and we'll see what that means in just a moment. In verse fourteen, a sheepish Barak finally stops dragging his teeth, his feet. But what's funny is that Deborah is the one that has to motivate him even to get into battle. She's the one that issues the command to charge. She shouts in verse 14, up! For this is the day in which the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand. Has not the Lord gone out from before you? It wasn't Barak that gave the charge, it was Deborah. Verse 15, though, tells us that Israel routed Sisera's army. The general, though, escaped. And Sisera hid in the tent of a woman by the name of Jael. Sisera asked Jael for some water to drink. Instead, she gave him some milk, which as you know is a natural sedative. Whenever I'm having trouble going to sleep, I always go down and give me a big glass of milk. It helps. And so he drinks this big glass of milk and he falls asleep. And as Sisera snoozes, Jael slips in, takes a tent peg, and hammers it through his temple into the ground. Jail's a nice hostess, you know, taking care of her visitors. And Sisera experiences excedrin headache number 99. (laughs) But hey, as Deborah prophesied, as she predicted, it was a woman not Barack that dealt the decisive blow to the general's counterpart. And it really robbed Barack of some of the luster of the victory. Kind of diminished his role and the glory that could have come his way. It's sad to find a church where the women have taken over. I say that not because... I want to demean or discredit women. I say that because when you find a church where the women have taken over, it usually means that there are wimpy men that are dragging their feet. The men lack spiritual maturity. They lack fortitude to rise up and lead. And that's why the women have had to step up and provide that leadership. Guys, that shouldn't be. We need men to be caring and compassionate But courageous and brave as well. Men willing to take on the responsibilities of servant leadership. We need that in our church. We need that in our homes. We need that in our youth group. We need that. In our society. Men who are willing to rise up and lead. And you know, I've never met a woman who resented A man who really wanted to lead in the right way. Who wanted to be a servant leader. Who wanted to be a loving leader. I've never met a woman who resented that. Chapter 5 is the song of Deborah. That she sings after the victory. And it sheds further light on the battle. I love verse 2. And this is an incredible thought for me. It says, When leaders lead in Israel... When the people willingly offer themselves, bless the Lord. Hey, when church leaders rise up in faith and demonstrate wisdom and courage and lead, when people trust their leaders and willingly follow, it's a combination that blesses the heart of God. Did you hear about the mother who went into her son's room one morning to wake him up to go to church? She said, now come on, Johnny. It's Sunday morning and you have to go to church. Get up. You're running late. A son rolled over and he complained, ah, oh, mom, do I have to go to church every Sunday? And she responded, of course you do. You're the pastor. <laughs> it's sad when that's the attitude of your pastor. Leaders need to lead. The church today suffers from a lack of wimpy leadership. Men are afraid to take a stand. Men are afraid to take a set a course and lead the people. But when you have leaders that lead, and when you have followers who follow, that combination blesses God. And when you have a leader that leads, the members of the church need to support the course that the leader sets. It's been said, when you can't lead and won't follow, all you do is make a dandy roadblock. We don't need roadblocks. We need stepping stones. We need bridge builders. It all came together for Barak. The leaders led and the people followed. Both worked together, each doing their part. And guess what happened? God won a tremendous victory. And when the leaders of this church lead... And when the people of this church follow, also it all comes together. And God wins a tremendous victory. Verses 13 through 18 of chapter 5 chart the participation of the various tribes in the battle. Those who chickened out and those who were eager to fight for the Lord. Verse 18 says that Zebulun jeopardized their lives to the point of death. Commendable. Whereas, according to verses 15 and 16, Reuben had great resolves of heart, but ended up sitting among the sheepfolds. In other words, they had good intentions, but they lacked follow-through. It's true, not just in tennis. A good serve requires a good follow-through. Verses 20 and 21 suggest that Barak... Got some celestial help while fighting Sisera in his iron chariots. We're told that the stars and their orbits and a flooding Kishon fought for Israel. What does that mean? Well, perhaps God pelted Sisera with a hailstorm, maybe. Maybe a rain of asteroids. A meteorite shower, perhaps. It seems that the same phenomena helped Joshua in his battle. You remember the long day of Joshua in our study there. Those same phenomena may have assisted Barak in this battle as well. Now understand, the Kishon is normally a dry riverbed. It fills with water only during heavy rains. And so the fact that the Kishon overflowed and flooded implies that there was a tremendous thunderstorm during the battle. Now imagine yourself being one of Sisera's soldiers, sitting in an iron chariot, stuck in the mud in the middle of an intense electrical storm, lightning flashing all around you, and you sitting in an iron chariot. You're not feeling very comfortable. You're not feeling very safe. The chariot suddenly became more a liability than an asset. <laughs> Isn't that funny? That's what Judah was afraid of. The chariots that had been built. And yet God turned that chariot into a liability rather than an asset. Isn't it amazing how quickly God can turn the tide? I love how Deborah's song closes. Thus let all your enemies perish, O Lord, but let those who love him be like the sun when it comes out in full strength. and that beautiful? Chapters 6 through 9 recount the amazing story of a man named Gideon. It begins with another cycle of sin and servitude. This time, Israel becomes slaves of the Midianites. And we're told in verse 5 that Midian employs a new weapon. At harvest time, they invaded the land on camels. And for the first time, camels are used in battle. The Midianites came into the land and they stole away the crop and it impoverished the Hebrews. Finally, Israel humbles herself and cries out to God. And in response, the angel of the Lord appears to a farmer by the name of Gideon in verse 11. Now usually, farmers... Are down at the threshing floor, pulling the oxen in order to thresh the wheat. It's an open area, plenty of activity. Everyone knows they're there. They can be seen. They're out in the open. But Gideon is not at the threshing floor. He's in the wine press. And he's not using oxen to thresh out the grain, he's doing it by himself. In other words, Gideon is working in seclusion. Gideon is undercover. Gideon is scared to be seen out in the open. Understand, Gideon is the most unlikely hero in all of the Bible. When God comes to him, he's defeated. He's frightened. He's even skeptical. And it must have sounded like a joke when God's messenger greets him. The Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. (laughs) That's not how Gideon was feeling at the time. Notice the first word out of his mouth is an admission of doubt. Where is God? In essence is what he said. Verse 13. If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles? Where is God? It's interesting that God doesn't argue with Gideon. Instead, he challenges his faith. God announces to Gideon that he will use him to deliver Israel. And Gideon scoffs. In verse 15, he says, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. Finally, Gideon asks for a sign. He takes meat and bread, and he lays them out on a rock. And the angel of the Lord takes the staff that's in his hand, and with one touch, he starts a barbecue. He touches the meat and bread with his staff, and fire issues out of the rock and consumes the meat. Burger King is not the first person to come up with the flame broil burger. Now, apparently, Gideon's own father was one of the men who had worshipped Baal. And God tells Gideon to tear down his father's altar, chop up the wooden idol, use it as firewood, and offer a sacrifice to the Lord Jehovah. This was a bold act. God is asking Gideon to make a statement, a declaration of protest, a deed equivalent to Martin Luther's 95 thesis or the Boston Tea Party. He's asking him to make a profound statement, a protest here. Now Gideon's faith is rising, but it's not yet where it needs to be. He obeys. <laughs> but if you read carefully, he does the deed at night so he can remain anonymous. Gideon is like many of us. He's applied for God's secret service. The only problem is, is that God doesn't have a secret service. God expects all His servants to be willing to go public, to be known as His servants. The next day, When it's discovered that Gideon was the one who had torn down the altar of Baal, the Baal worshippers they come to him and they want to offer him as sacrifice. But Gideon has won his first convert and guess who it is? His own father comes to his defense. Dead has seen the folly of this idolatry. He says to them, what kind of God allows his altar to be bowled over and his image to be used as firework. Let's think about this, guys. And he challenges his own countrymen to let Baal defend himself. In fact, Gideon receives a new name. He's called Jerubbabel, which means let Baal plead. Why are we taking a why do we have a God we have to take up for, he's saying, <laughs> you know? You know, if, if this God were really worth worshiping, he wouldn't have allowed. A man like Gideon to come and bowl over his altar anyway. Now Gideon's act of faith does not go unnoticed. This does make a statement that reverberates throughout the land. The Midianites and the Amalekites, they find out about it. And they come and they camp in the valley of Jezreel, which is the same valley that the Antichrist will one day camp in during the battle of Armageddon. They come to stamp out the uprising that's been started by Gideon. Gideon's daring act, it stirs the hearts of the Hebrew people. Revival breaks out in the land, and scores of Hebrews rally to Gideon in order to fight against the Amalekites and the Midianites. In verse 34, we're told, The Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. God is working in Gideon, but his faith is still weak. And in verse 36, he asks for another sign. If you will save Israel by my hand as you have said. And he asks for a sign. Now, God wants us to base our faith not on signs or fleeces, but on his word. But a weak faith sometimes needs propped up by a sign. Or by some tangible evidence. And so Gideon lays out a fleece or a sheepskin. Lays it out there on the threshing floor. And he makes a deal with God. If the dew, the next morning, if the dew is on the fleece and not on the ground around it. Then Gideon will know that the Lord really wants him to lead the Hebrews into battle against the Midianites. Well, the next morning they wake up. And the fleece is so saturated with water that he squeezes it and fills a bowl full of water. That' pretty good sign. But that's still not enough for Gideon. Well, Lord, that may have been a fluke. How about another sign? And so he says, Lord, I'm going to lay this fleece out again. And this time, tomorrow morning when I wake up, if the ground around the fleece is damp and the fleece is dry, you know, the reverse happens, then I'll know for sure that you really want me to rise up and lead the Hebrews in battle against the Midianites. God goes along with Gideon's test and He provides him yet one more sign. Now, question always comes up. When it comes to discerning the will of God, should we employ a fleece. Should we ask for a sign? It worked for Gideon, so why not for us? Well, first of all, let me note that God used the fleece to prop up a weak faith. In other words, Gideon's faith needed a crutch. God wants your faith to be strong enough so that you don't need a crutch. So that your faith is not based on physical things, but on the word of God. God wants our faith so strong that we can stand solely on what God has said. will believe his promise and will trust him based on his word and his word alone. That's where God wants our faith. Now, I won't say God will never speak through a fleece, but be careful. This was an Old Testament phenomenon which was never practiced after the Spirit was poured out on the church at Pentecost. In fact, just before the Spirit came upon the church, they did cast lots, which was a type of fleece, in order to select a replacement for Judas as a disciple. And there's evidence that they chose the wrong person. They chose Matthias, but I believe they should have waited because God had a man by the name of Paul. In mind for that 12th spot in the apostles. Let me also say, when I lay out a fleece before the Lord, note what I'm really doing. I'm really dictating my terms to God. And that's always dangerous business. Who are you to dictate anything to God? Who are you to dictate the terms to God? God may not want to follow your terms. It's also enlightening that even after God responds to Gideon's first fleece, notice it doesn't settle the issue in his mind. He asks for another sign. I mean, where does it end? I mean, God might give you a sign, but will you want another and another and another? There's always that possibility that it could have been a freakish occurrence. And that's the problem with a fleece. It may or may not have been the Lord. It could have been just a fluke. For me, it is always better to trust in God's Word. And when I make a decision, I wait for the clear voice of the Holy Spirit. I think it's kind of shaky ground to lean and depend on fleeces and signs and lots and and the like. In chapter 7, verse 2, God reveals to Gideon how well he knows the human heart. He says, the people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands. Lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Of course, even if they had gone into battle at that very moment, they would have been heavily overmatched. Later we're told that there were 135,000 Midianites. Gideon only had 32 soldiers to start off with. Do the math and you'll realize that from the beginning he was outnumbered four to one. To imagine that Israel would be unwilling to give the glory to God when they were up against an army four times their size shows how proud and conceited they really were. The only means to guard against this kind of glory-grabbing is to stack the table so steep against Israel. To create such astronomical odds that there would be no way that they could even think of taking the glory. And that's what God does. He whittles down the troops even further. He takes away every handle that their greedy, greedy little hands could grab and hold on to. First, he tells Gideon to send home anyone who's fearful and afraid. The army shrinks to 10,000. Now he's outnumbered 13 to 1. That's still not good enough. God decides to thin the troops out one more time. Gideon goes down to the spring. And he tells the men to get a drink of water. A good soldier now would always drop to his knees, cup his hands raised the water up to his mouth so he could keep his head high, so he could see what was going on around him. Gideon must have breathed a sigh of relief when only 300 of the men fell down on their faces and stuck their head into the spring and started lapping water like a dog. He says, good, we'll only lose 300. 300. Sloppy shoulders. Look at those guys. I want the vigilant guys. But then God turns to the guys who got down on a knee and he says, you go home. I'm leaving Gideon with the guys who lapped like the dog. Oh, no. (laughs) Surprise, surprise. And so Gideon's left with 300 soldiers. Now he's outnumbered 450 to 1. And the few soldiers he's got, they're untrained, they're sloppy. They're a discredit to the uniform. God has finally stacked the odds and created a scenario that not even the glory-grabbing Hebrews are arrogant enough to deny him the credit. We need to understand that this is how God works. This is how he works in our lives. He chooses containers that would never distract from the contents. Simple, ordinary, sinful people like you and me. He puts his treasure in clay jars, Corinthians tells us. He uses the weak and foolish to do mighty deeds, to defy and confound the wise and the strong. He overthrows armies with 300 ragamuffin foot soldiers. God is good at backing our glory-hogging hearts into a corner. He creates impossible scenarios, so when He finally comes through, it's obvious to all that the glory belongs to God. You're in a situation right now, and you think there's no way God can help. Things are so far gone. My back is in such a corner. The odds are so stacked against me. But you don't understand. God is creating the kind of situation in which He loves to work. Because He knows when He wins the victory, you can't take the credit. It will all go to Him. Imagine now a farmer turned general, outnumbered 450 to 1, going into battle with the, for the very first time in his life with only 300 soldiers, all of whom are shabby and sloppy and a discredit to the uniform. Gideon needs a little encouragement. And so that's why God sends him on a spy mission. He slips down the mountainside. He eavesdrops in on a conversation where he hears a Midianite soldier recounting a dream. And the conclusion they draw is that God has given the victory to Gideon. This excites him. He is pumped. He heads back to mobilize the troops. And according to God's instruction, he gives to each man a trumpet, a torch, and a jar. Wait a minute. How about a sword, a spear, and a shield? Nope. God has other plans. Around 10 o'clock that night, Gideon and his men, they slip down the mountainside. They encircle the camp. In unison, they blow their trumpets. They shatter the pitchers. And they shout, the sword of the Lord is and of Gideon. The Midianites, they wake up, but they're still kind of groggy and senseless. They hear all this racket. They suddenly see these torches blazing on the mountainside. They conclude that the army of Israel has launched a surprise attack. The men of Midian, they panic. And in the dark, they end up turning their swords on one another. And those that aren't killed end up fleeing from the battle. Chapter 8 records the mop-up. And the punishment that Gideon applies to two Israeli cities who side with the kings of Midian, rather than side with the sword of the Lord. In verse 22, Israel wants to crown Gideon as king. He answers them in verse 23, I will not rule over you. Nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. Now, I think this is tragic. Even after the point that God made in the battle, the people still would have robbed God of the glory and given it to Gideon had he not stopped them. They want to make him king. He says, No way. God is king. Worship him. I think we need to beware. For often, after you have been used by God, people who've been blessed by your ministry will want to turn around and put you on the pedestal. Wait a minute. I didn't do anything. All the glory went to God. But you're the only person they can see. And they'll want to elevate you. They'll want to pat you on the back. They'll want to put you on the pedestal. And you need to turn it down. It's your responsibility, it's your duty to turn it down. You and I are not pedestal material, are we? We need to give God the glory. Great things He has done. We need to turn our backs to the shouts and the applause and the praise. A truly great man or woman doesn't forget who deserves the credit. It all belongs to God. Gideon refuses a crown. But he does mold an ephod. Remember, an ephod was a priestly garment. Some scholars speculate that though Gideon turned down the throne, he did desire priestly influence. And one thing we'll notice in the book of Judges is the conspicuous absence of the priests. And perhaps Gideon sensed a need for a priestly presence. Remember the ephod held the Urim and the Thummim. These were the means by which the priest would discern the will of God. And I believe that this golden ephod could have been intended by Gideon as sort of a permanent fleece. Some kind of mechanical means for deciphering the will of God. Walk up to the ephod You know, ask your question and presto, an instant answer. Wouldn't that be nice? Just a will of God dispenser, you know. But you wouldn't have to walk with God. You wouldn't even have to talk to Him. You wouldn't have to pray. You wouldn't have to spend time in His presence. You wouldn't have to quiet your soul. You wouldn't have to cultivate a fellowship with God. Oh, all you'd have to do is just visit the golden ephod. I like the way that God set it up. Or if you want to know his will, you need to hear his heart. You need to get close. You need to open your ears. You need to cultivate that fellowship and that relationship with him. Whatever Gideon's motive, it proved to be a terrible idea. It backfired because the people turned the ephod into an idol. And it became what was intended to be a help, became a snare to Israel. Never substitute a rite or a ritual or a rule or a relic for a personal relationship with God. Don't get out your beads. You know, don't look to the relic, don't look to the ritual if you want to know the will of God, develop a relationship with God. It takes longer. It takes more time, more effort. But that's how you know God's will. You become friends with God. And you listen to God. And God talks to you and you talk to Him. That's how you learn to know God's will. There is evidence that though Gideon refused the title of king, he didn't mind living like one. He kept quite a harem. And his many wives produced him 70 sons. He also had a son by a concubine who lived in Shechem. Gideon named the boy Abimelech. And the word means, my father is king. A strange name for Gideon to give to his son if he didn't have some visions of grandeur. After Gideon dies, Abimelech becomes power-hungry. And he wants the post that his father has turned down. He first, though, needs to rid himself of any rivals. And so he hires thugs to go and kill Gideon's 70 sons. And the only survivor is a boy named Jotham. He manages to escape and he hides from Abimelech. And in chapter 9, verse 6, the men of Shechem have all gathered together to crown Abimelech as king. But the coronation ceremony gets interrupted. Jotham appears on top of the mountain and he shouts to the crowd below. He tells a parable. He says, the trees have asked several notable trees to become their king. The olive tree, the fig tree, the grapevine. But these trees are too busy with their God-given tasks. The only tree willing to be king is the bramble. And the implication is this. The wise men know that God is king and no one should take his place. It's only a sinister bramble who would try to take the place of God and become king. And Jotham predicts that fire will come out from the bramble and consume the other trees who had made him king. The king will turn on his subjects and they'll regret the day they crowned him. And this is exactly what happens. The men of Shechem ends up they end up at odds with Abimelech. And they revolt. And according to chapter 9, verse 45, Abimelech comes and destroys the city of Shechem. Abimelech, though, eventually pays for his treachery against the house of his father. At the end of chapter 9, he attacks the town of Thebes. And the people hold up in the city's tower. And Abimelech is walking around at the bottom of the tower when a woman throws down an upper millstone. This was a stone that was about two feet in diameter and was about a foot thick. Hits him right on the head. And not even a BC powder can help this headache. The blow cracks Abimelech's skull. And isn't it ironic? The king gets crowned. And the fact that a woman did it inflicted Insult to injury. And even in his death, old Abimelech is more concerned about his image than his suffering. He tells his male servant to draw his sword and kill him, so at least people won't say Abimelech was killed by a woman. Imagine he's about to die, and all he's concerned about is his image. Abimelech wanted to be crowned, and in the end he was. Be careful what you want. Usurp God's place, grab God's glory, and you become the object of God's wrath. The olive tree, the fig tree, the grapevine, they all wanted to serve God and serve people. Only the bramble wanted to rule over men. Even God-called leaders need to have as their motive a desire to serve, not A desire to rule. At the beginning of chapter 10, two judges are mentioned, Tola and Jair. Tola was the son of Dodo. Probably a claim that my three sons could make as well. (laughs) Actually, the name Tola means worm. And he may have been a wormy kind of a guy, an inferior person. But you know, God is good at using worms and dodos to accomplish his purposes as well as my three sons could testify. Jair had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, who lived in 30 cities, and guess how many years he served as judge of Israel? 23, sorry. (laughs) Verse 6 tells us, Then the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, and served the Baals and the Ashtoreths, and they forsook the Lord and did not serve Him. And the cycle starts all over again. First sin, then servitude. Finally, after 18 years of oppression, the Israelis repent of their idolatry, and they make supplication to God. But this time, God reveals His frustrations with the people. In essence, He tells them, hey guys, (laughs) we've been here before. This deliverance thing is not new. But every time I drive out your enemies, you thank me by serving other gods. What's the deal? And God reacts to this ongoing betrayal in verse 14. He tells them, go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in your time of distress. Who could blame God for his feelings? You know, the truth hurts. We need to think the next time we cry out to God for His help? How can we ignore Him? How can we brush Him off for weeks and ignore coming to church and ignore reading our Bible and ignore spending time with Him and then suddenly in a crisis we expect God to drop everything and come to our aid? Is God saying to us, cry out to your television set. Go to the job that you worship. Pray to the people with whom you party. Let them come to your aid. Let them help you in your time of distress. In verse 15, Israel shows real repentance. They say, do to us whatever seems best to you, Lord. Only deliver us this day. And so they put away the foreign gods and they serve the Lord. You see, true repentance turns from sin And accepts its consequences. And notice God's response. And this is so much like God. I love it. Verse 16. And his soul could no longer endure the misery of Israel. Yes, God felt hurt. Yes, he felt betrayed. But God is too merciful to let our sin quench his love. And his soul just couldn't stand it any longer to see his people suffer. He loves us that much that even when you've betrayed him, even when you've ignored him, even when you've neglected him, and even when you don't deserve his help and aid, he loves you so much he'll still come to your help if you'll repent of your sin and just ask. Isn't that just like At the end of chapter 10, the two armies are preparing for battle when the cry goes out in verse 18. Who is the man who will begin the fight against the people of Ammon? The man's name is Jephthah, and we'll study him next week. Lord, thanks for your word. Thanks for the chapters tonight. We love you, Father. We ask you to bless us as we go home. Give us a good week this week. Help us, Lord, to... Submit to the breaking you want to do in our lives so that your light can shine brightly through us. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, you're dismissed.